Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks so much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We have a great conversation ahead for you here in this episode. If you've missed any recent episodes, of course, find them wherever you get your podcasts at Max Politics, and we have them all at the Gotham Gazette website. We've been bouncing back and forth, as we always do, between city and state politics. Uh, there's been obviously a lot of upheaval at the city level with the new mayoral administration of Eric Adams coming in, a new city council and other new officials in the city and a lot going on in the early weeks of the Adams administration. So we've been dealing with some of that here on the show. And then it is a new year and a new session in state government. And in Albany, it's Governor Kathy Hochul's first full year here as governor. It could be her only full year here as governor, depending on how the election goes this year. But she has uh, often running with her state of the state address and her executive budget. And so we've been discussing uh, those matters and issues at hand at the state level here on the show with some great guests. So you can find all the recent episodes uh, at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site. Some recent guests have included state senators Jessica Ramos of Queens and Liz Kruger of Manhattan. They both have uh, important priorities that they're working on and important roles in the state legislature. And we've also been talking with journalists about the governor's agenda and so much more. All right. Today on the show, I'm very pleased to be joined by Doreen Harris, the president and CEO of NYSERDA. NYSERDA is the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. This is um, one of these you know, uh, governmental authorities, which is a governmental adjacent uh, organization that Doreen will explain a little bit more to us in a minute, that uh, some, of, some of these types of authorities and entities can be somewhat obscure, but play enormously important roles in, uh, in New Yorkers' lives, in the future of our city, our state. Uh, obviously, the most prominent, perhaps, authority that New Yorkers, especially in the city, are familiar with is the MTA, of course, running the subways and buses. Um, but you know, these are these are organizations that have boards. Uh, they're they're uh, they're complicated entities in some ways. But the essence here of NYSERDA as a public benefit corporation is working on energy, uh, working on where New York State's economy, environment, and energy is going. And uh, really, NYSERDA is at the center of so much happening in New York State around the future of climate adaptation, clean energy, innovation, investments, and where New York is headed, especially in line with some landmark legislation that was passed in 2019 that NYSERDA is very much involved in helping to implement. All right. So uh, that's a little bit of inter introduction. Doreen, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to, to join me here. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. That was a great introduction uh, to NYSERDA. Uh, appreciate it. Yeah, trying to trying to keep things here uh, accessible, you know, for everyday New Yorkers who are not uh, the climate wonks, who are not necessarily the energy wonks. We're obviously having this conversation for, for you folks, too, uh, who I'm sure are listening, but we want to make sure we're trying to help New Yorkers really understand what is happening with New York State's, uh, as it's called, nation-leading climate plan and how your authority uh, fits into that. So broad strokes here, um, anything I missed in terms of what NYSERDA is and does and, and sort of what your role is for the state of New York here? 
Sure. I, I think about it in, in two directions at this point. There is the NYSERDA that has actually been um, part of the state ecosystem since the 1970s, um, originally focusing on innovation and expanding dramatically over the last decade to really be a leading force behind New York's climate goals, clean energy goals, and beyond. So on the one hand, um, we are a public benefit corporation. We have invested significantly to realize some of the real, real nation-leading outcomes that we're seeing here in the state. On the other hand, um, we are the state's energy office, and we do have specific uh, requirements to not only plan for our energy future, but now more expansively, I am uh, the co-chair of New York's Climate Action Council, along with DEC Commissioner Basil Sagos. Together, we are advancing the goals of New York's Climate Act, as you described it, which means that we have both an implementation and a planning and policy lens that we see these initiatives through. That's great. Thank you. So um, the... Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act uh, passed in 2019, as I was saying, has some really, really big uh, goals, um, achieving a 40% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, which <laughs> as we just entered 2022 is, is really not that far off, um, but that's a 40% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in New York by 2030, an 85% reduction by 2050. Um, and then there, there's there's other goals as well. There's a, There's a number of benchmarks that it sets out and um, NYSERDA is really uh, at the center of this. And then, as you said, you have this other role with the Climate Action Council that is that was a part of, of what the um, Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act created. So before people get too lost in some of the um, terminology here and a little bit of the, the word salad and the, and the numbers, um, if you're talking to sort of regular uh, everyday New Yorkers and they say, hey, I heard about this, you know, this landmark legislation everybody's talking about. New York's going to be a leader in shifting away from uh, greenhouse gas emissions, fossil fuels. W what are, what's really happening here? What is the state setting out to do? How do you describe it? Yes, I think that the easiest way to think about what the Climate Act um, does for New York and specifically for, for our work at NYSERDA is it sets forth a set of requirements that are, um, I would say, order, at least an order of magnitude beyond what our, our previous goals had established. And so by that, I mean, it sets a level of ambition that necessitates us to really think about every aspect of our economy very differently. And I would say, of course, for the benefit, <laughs> for the good, both from a perspective of health, um, our climate, and also our economy. So that's that's really what it comes down to. It comes down to a fundamental shift um, in, in a lot of ways that we live and work, um, but also a change that I think is going to position our state, not only as a leader in this fight, but further as a beneficiary thereof. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I'll add, you know, one of the mandated goals here is a zero emission electricity sector by 2040, uh, including 70% renewable energy generation uh, by 2030. 
Um, it's really, you know, the, the plan for a sweeping overhaul of, as you said, major sectors of the economy and also uh, just how New Yorkers get around because transportation is a huge part of emissions and the you know, green energy uh, present and future, as well as our homes, our buildings and so forth. We've seen here in New York City, uh, some landmark uh, legislation trying to green uh, the buildings here in the city. So we hear a lot about the grid. Um, Describe how New York's grid, uh, electricity grid, power grid sort of currently functions and where it's heading. What is, you know, what, what are we shifting in terms of what that looks like? Sure. Yes, the grid, the grid is really where it all begins um, because of the fact that to transform sectors like buildings and transportation, as you indicated, the, the majority of the, um, I'd say, near-term options that we have available to reduce gas um, utilization, most notably, would be to electrify, to electrify our cars, to electrify our homes, to electrify our buildings, et cetera. And so if you are going to rely in the near term on electrification, you need a grid that is clean and renewable um, to deliver to deliver those um, attributes to, as I said, homes and businesses and beyond. So we as a state have been actually hard at work in achieving that grid objective for quite some time. And I would say that Relatively speaking, um, we're we're ahead of the curve in that regard through through those prior investments. Uh, just to give you some sense of of New York's grid, it's important to note that when we talk about the Climate Act, we're talking about the term consumption, i.e., what type of renewable electricity are we consuming um, as a state, and and so that means that. If we have um, renewables that are generated in New York and and sent elsewhere, they they wouldn't count. They need to be consumed in New York State. So generally speaking, our grid is is pretty clean um, now. And and a lot of the renewables that are serving our grid are actually hydroelectric power that is uh, generated both in-state and imported, notably from um, Canada. We have increasing amounts of wind and solar that are uh, delivered to our grid. And by wind and solar, I mean wind that is largely generated upstate, same for solar um, and on Long Island. And then when we look into the future, we will see an even more dramatic transformation. Uh, Right now, we are served about 27% by renewable energy. But when we head toward 2030, we have a goal of 70% renewables, which is a big shift over Mm -hmm. not very many years. But the good news is when we look at the pipeline of projects that we specifically at NYSERDA have under contract and and are moving forward, we're on track to be at about 63% renewable by 2030, which predominantly will be filled, that difference between today's 27% and 2030's numbers will be predominantly filled by more solar, more wind, 
and offshore wind as, as a new resource that we will be uh, seeing at scale um, for New York. So we're actually well on our way. Um, we see a future where our grid is, is powered by the sun and powered by water and powered by wind. And we have a very significant pipeline of projects ready to deliver that objective. And, and let's talk a little bit about some of those projects. There's been a, a, a flurry of announcements, as I, th- I, assume, I assume there will be just throughout, you know, going forward. Uh, lots of announcements around these projects and, and uh, you know, uh, things coming up for bid and permissions and, and you know, uh, projects getting going and all sorts of things. Um, but as you said, these, you know, some of these major renewable sources, uh, water, wind and sun, um, Let's get into a few projects in a second, but let me ask you big picture here, just based on what you were just saying. Um, obviously, so much of of what this is all about is about climate change, a changing climate, responding to that, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, New York trying to do its part uh, in what needs to be a global effort on that. Um, and then we're talking about in some ways, you know, really more and more relying on what we call renewables, but which are also, uh, you know, sort of coming from our climate, coming from our weather, coming from our earth. Um, how, how, what is the thinking uh, from your perspective in terms of doing these projects that rely so much on, uh, you know, natural resources while the climate is changing? Are there major unaccounted for risks there? Are there uh, big outstanding questions about how things related to water, wind, and sun could change as these projects are um, moving forward? Or does it feel like so much of this is sort of stable for, for many, many generations to come? That's a great question. And it is one that at this moment, there's a lot of work going on mm-hmm. in the industry and, and broadly from a policy perspective to look at what our future does look like in a, in a world where we are faced with climate change and the impacts thereof. Um, we have actually a number of climate studies. Uh, as I said, NYSERDA's, NYSERDA has a wide reach. Um, we, we conducted a study called Climate a number of years ago that we are uh, re-upping and expanding on, which is, is looking at just these things. Um, not only how will our state change um, from a resiliency perspective, notably um, in the face of climate change, but also it is true that there will be shifts with respect to the amount of rainfall, um, the amount of wind, um, maybe less so the amount of sun, but but certainly um, relying on these resources in light of climate change is it, it is a critical question to be asking and to be looking at into the future. Um, in fact, we see the we see some trends even in Europe where there's a significant amount of offshore wind installed where there are periods where it's just not windy. Um, mm-hmm. And and when we look at a future for New York where we're heavily reliant on these resources, we need to plan accordingly. And we plan accordingly, not only from a study perspective, but also a design perspective. Um, we need a resilient grid, full stop. And to do so, it's not just about the generation sources, it's also about the availability of of what we would call balancing resources like energy storage that will help us to, I would say, be more resilient with respect 
to the variability of the resources that are generating themselves. So I'm sure we'll talk about it, but it's mm-hmm. very much part of the broader system planning that's under with. Yeah, interesting. Um, all right, there are many, many uh, projects that have been announced over the last months, um, a lot having especially to do with a couple of major transmission lines that could be coming from upstate and Canada, uh, especially to help bring uh, renewable energy down towards New York City. Uh, some major offshore wind announcements, uh, solar, a variety of announcements. Are there a couple you want to highlight as particularly important for achieving the state's goals? Um, and you know, I wanted to ask you as part of that, these major transmission lines um, coming from upstate, coming from Canada, they need some permissions. They need to, you know, uh, if, on any of the projects you want to highlight, you know, sort of um, <laughs> what are what are some matters of urgency where you need partners, you know, you don't have full control over just executing, um, you know, what are some areas there that you need partnership and whether it's permissions or fundings from the outside and give us a little sense on a couple of sort of exemplar projects, how, uh, you know, others come into the picture. Sure, sure. It is true when we are looking at what are very significant and what I would say are infrastructure projects, um, and I'll talk about a couple of examples, we very much need to leverage the alignment of where we are as a state with specifically where the federal government is and, and of course, for New York, where New York City is with respect to their um, policies as well. And we have actually a moment, um, a moment that is, I would say, somewhat rare, but one that I certainly hope will continue as long as it can, where we have really good alignment in in policy objectives um, between local, state, federal, and and frankly, global um, policies as well. So, So one huge challenge for New York in achieving our objectives is really the fact that we have a very different grid that is serving New York City than is serving upstate New York. New York City is served primarily by fossil generation, whereas upstate has the benefit of more renewable site, more renewables already cited, as I described, plus existing um, nuclear power generation facilities that deliver clean energy primarily to the upstate region. And so we have two major initiatives that are really getting at the challenge, the very notable challenge in New York State of decarbonizing the city's grid. And you you mentioned both, but I'll take them in turn. Um, one is a program that was actually um, announced, uh, two awards were announced by Governor Hochul back um, during Climate Week in the fall. And it is for two projects, uh, the Clean Path New York project and the Champlain Hudson Power Express project both of which are going to be doing two things. One, building new transmission into New York City, and two, delivering renewable energy, whether it be from upstate New York or Canada, um, through those transmission lines into New York City. And all told, those two projects will actually power about a third of New York City's needs with those renewable um, projects. So it's a really big deal. Um, But 
to your question, it is a situation that is, uh, I would say, bolstered by the strong commitment in this case of New York City to actually purchase a portion of, of those projects to power their own operations via renewables as well. So um, these are big projects that will need to be permitted and, and there will be permits that are required both um, in the case of the Champlain Hudson Power Express from Canada uh, in Canada, as well as within New York. That project is largely permitted, um, but a few still to obtain. The Clean Path New York project is, is um, still needing to pursue its permits. And it is true that they will need both uh, successful permitting as well as um, approval of our contracts by New York's Public Service Commission in order to advance their development and ultimately um, operation. So those are two, two big two big projects that mm -hmm. are going to help us achieve that objective. The other resource that we should certainly talk about is the resource that is offshore wind. And this is a resource we've been looking at substantially um, for about a decade now because of the fact that it is a huge game changer for New York State. We established a goal of nine gigawatts uh, by 2035 uh, for our offshore wind goal in the Climate Act. And it's on the basis really of what we had seen was happening in the European markets, where we saw this resource that can be sited really close to, in this case, load of New York City and Long Island, but also a huge resource that we have right off our coast um, to deliver um, what will amount to about a third of New York State's load um, when we get to our 2035 goal from this resource. So this helps us tremendously in not only achieving the Climate Act goals, but also in achieving some really exciting economic development activities. And that's probably some of the announcements you've been hearing. Um, we have tremendous amount of investment going on in New York for port infrastructure um, to serve this brand new industry right here from New York. Um, we also have major transmission planning activities underway to deliver those projects to New York City and Long Island. And we also see a huge opportunity for workforce development to serve that industry as well. So uh, it mm -hmm. is the future. These two, prod these two resources are hugely impactful as to the achievement of our goals. And um, the biggest barriers uh, would be these permissions, would be uh, the potential, is there potential for you know, localities, uh, you know, local elected officials to, you know, really sort of gum things up by saying, you know, we don't want uh, such disruption, you know, going through our communities. We, uh, you know, we need this built elsewhere. Are there ways for, uh, you know, what, what are the big potential hurdles here? What are the things that keep you up at night uh, as we're talking about sort of moving these major, major projects ahead that you just uh, described? Yes, thanks for reminding me. I, I didn't get to that part of the question. Um, so from an offshore- I don't want to remind you about things that keep you up at night, but you know, I have, I have a job to do here, so. <laughs> yeah, so for offshore wind, uh, there are, uh, there, there's a complex permitting paradigm for offshore wind. Um, the projects themselves are located in federal waters, which is more than three nautical miles off of our coast. And so the federal's, 
federal Department of the Interior um, has a department known as the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, and they're responsible for permitting the project itself, as well as uh, a good bit of the transmission uh, infrastructure that would be needed to bring it to shore. New York also serves uh, a role through our Article 7 process in permitting the the closer to shore um, and onshore parts of the transmission project, as well as localities, as you had pointed out. And so sort of zooming out just a little on the topic of successful project development, these are these are massive infrastructure projects that frankly just need to be done right. And by that, we mean that first, the project itself needs to be sited in ocean space that balances the utilization of the ocean, uh, commercial fishing as a good example, environmental um, utilization by wildlife and others um, as well. It's a busy ocean out there um, and we need to, to really site these projects responsibly. But then the, the real impact, if you will, to um, those of us living on land, is the transmission infrastructure for the projects through which the project needs to be routed um, to a point of interconnection, as we call it, on land. And that's where um, more local issues come into play for offshore wind. Um, the cables are buried. So in the end, the only real impact um, is the substation that it will deliver to. But in the meantime, it is true that the cable itself needs to be sited in, in a way that minimizes impacts and obviously takes into account fully the, the views of local communities and the like. So from offshore wind, um, certainly those are the major factors. When you're talking about siting renewables on land like solar and land-based wind, the issues are different because then we are dealing with visual impacts, we are dealing with land use considerations, and of course, community benefits and opportunities associated with the projects. And, and in all ways, we very much need the best projects to move forward. We've been very clear about that. We're not going to get our to our goals if uh, projects aren't cited responsibly. And so we've we've certainly made that a top priority, given the scale of what we need to install, but also the criticality of doing so. Who's most responsible for all this? Is it you? Is is it the governor for sort of laying out more of the vision and bringing the public along and visiting localities to sell, you know, just get buy in? Um uh, is it, you know, the Climate Action Council that needs to, you know, bring in its many sort of uh, tentacles and, and stakeholders? Who, who's most responsible for sort of making sure the Public Service Commission gives approval for making sure that, you know, there aren't huge uh, hiccups, you know, when it comes to localities or or federal, uh, you know, approvals. Um, this could, of course, be different folks for different uh, aspects of what I'm asking about. But, um who, who, who's who's most responsible here and, and how much do you need, uh, you know, really dedicated leadership from uh, from the governor? Sure. Well, it, it certainly does all start with the governor um, and the objectives that she has set forth for us as to the the direction that we're heading, which is one very clearly of acknowledging the climate crisis that we're in, you know, her very first couple of weeks on the job, she had a very direct experience um, with climate change and the impacts thereof. 
And, and I would say that she has set forth an ambitious agenda that it is our responsibility to achieve as, as obviously public servants in that respect. But it is it is the case that it's it's hard to put your finger on one specific responsible party. Um, certainly, we at NYSERDA are responsible largely for the achievement of the, the clean energy goals um, across the state. But to do so, it is true that we need support and alignment with many other agencies. Um, we talked about permitting as a great example, um, the Public Service Commission as another. But broadly, to be successful, we really need support from people, from the public at large as well. Um, and we have really good consensus, um, increasingly so, as to the acknowledgement of, of climate change and its impacts. What we're asking people to do is to actually do something about that. And to do so, we're, it is incumbent on all of us to not only educate, but also to bring forth um, the support that's needed to uh, facilitate the change that we're talking about. And I think the Climate Action Council is a good example of that, um, uh, I would say, in action. We, we, at the end of last year, produced a scoping plan in draft form that helps us in, in a way that we've never been able to, <laughs> to lay out exactly um, the changes we're talking about, the pathways, if you will, to get from here to the goals of the Climate Act. We delivered that scoping plan on time after a couple of years of very hard work by the Climate Action Council and uh, different advisory panels that were experts in these sectors of the economy to help us, again, lay out those pathways. But where we sit today, we are in the midst of a public comment period um, responding to that draft scoping plan. And as part of it, we actually will be traveling the state this spring um, in engaging directly with the public uh, to obtain not only their input, but also to help them better understand what we have learned through those couple of years of effort. Mm. And that's where um, this really becomes critical um, to not only educate, but learn um, from one another and, and obviously advance these initiatives together. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to try to make sure to get that in because there's opportunity here for people listening, not just to to learn, but also to participate. Um, so so folks can check out that uh, that document, uh, that that draft scoping plan from the Climate Action Council. Just Google it uh, and, and check it out. And, and there will be news about how to get further involved uh, at some point. So. Um, <laughs> I want to move to a couple of these big subject areas in our, you know, last five or six minutes here. Um, and, and Doreen Harris of NYSERDA, thanks again very much for the time here. Um, on the transportation sector and um, and housing and buildings, I should say, it's not just housing. Um, let, let's just dive into each of those briefly. Um, what are you at NYSERDA and what is New York State doing to decarbonize the transportation sector, um, how how difficult is that? Um, the state has has passed uh, some ambitious requirements on what can be sold in New York uh, in terms of vehicles. Um, so, where are we at on decarbonizing the transportation sector? Sure, sure. Yeah, there's. This is one really interesting piece of the draft scoping plan that is tremendously helpful to each of us as we look at how we get from here to there. 
So the scoping plan actually um, includes an integration analysis that lays out um, the, I'll call it the wedges. Uh, how, how much do, does each sector of our economy contribute um, to our greenhouse gas emissions? And, and sort of where are the biggest prizes, if you will, from that perspective? And, and buildings and transportation are at the top of the list. Um, in New York, we have 6 million buildings and they contribute about 30% to our greenhouse gas emissions um, statewide. And transportation is not far behind um, as well. Although we have one of the most efficient transportation uh, systems, uh, certainly due to New York City and the utilization of mass transit, of course. As a general matter, we have a lot of work to do in both of those sectors. And you are correct in saying that um, in both instances, Governor Hochul has laid out a policy agenda that can begin to help us get there. And, and for both sectors, really, it, it does utilize electrification in the first instance as the primary means um, to minimize our utilization of, of natural gas um, and other fuels. So on the, I guess I'll, I'll take the building sector first, sure. um, if that's okay. Of course. Um, on the, in the building sector, one major initiative that was part of this year's state of the state policy agenda was a proposal um, by Governor Hochul for 2 million climate friendly homes. And that is unprecedented um, for certain. This means that we will be working now through a lot of different directions, a policy um, perspective, a legislative perspective, and of course, a budgetary perspective to advance a minimum of a million electrified homes and up to a million electrification ready homes by 2030, with a strong focus on low to moderate income households to ensure that they are not only supported, but also benefit um, from these investments. And how do we do so? <laughs> we have a variety of approaches. Um, the specific legislative um, initiative is uh, to ensure that all new building construction is zero emissions by 2027. And to do so, we have uh, various levers. One of them we really are excited about, which is appliance efficiency. Talk about a no-brainer. If we can improve the efficiency of our appliances, um, it's a huge savings for everyone and you know billions of dollars um, in utility costs. We also have the ability to benchmark buildings and that's another part of the agenda, i.e. when you go in a building, uh, we wanna know how it compares to the one next to it, um, particularly with some of the high rise buildings um, and beyond. And then we also have very specific codes that we wanna put in place to realize um, this objective. And we're able to do so because of the work of the Climate Action Council and also through the work of various initiatives that we've advanced at NYSERDA. This is a complex sector. We're working on single family homes all the way up to the Empire State Building um, and really mm -hmm. realizing these objectives from the buildings. And another piece of this is our schools, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, we are initi initiating several efforts to clean our schools and our school buses, um, given that these are hugely impactful to local communities and of course children um, as it should be. So Can I, that's if building. I, yeah, if yep. I could just jump in on buildings for a second. Yep. Um, 
you're, you're mentioning a, a key proposal from the governor. New York City just passed this law uh, for the city to to well, it's pa- has passed multiple laws, including one more recently about to decarbonize buildings, including to prevent new gas hookups uh, in either, uh, you know, sort of demolish reconstruction or major, you know, reconstruction or new buildings. And uh, you're getting at the proposal from the governor to, to do something similar on the state level, although I believe a little bit of a less um, aggressive timeline than she's proposing. But that's that's one of the major uh, pieces of the legislative agenda here that needs the state legislature to, to to agree to right in the next you know few months for this to happen this legislative session i mean that's one of the things that the governor has put out there on this agenda that is a sort of a new proposal that needs legislative approval correct that's correct so that's the legislative right. part of this which would really be implemented primarily through new york's building code um and and perhaps provide a little um I would say more flexibility as to its actual implementation. Um, 2027 is is a year that is part of her agenda, but through the code council, we may find earlier years make more sense for some sectors and and beyond. So that's one really interesting part of her proposal. And her legislative in term, proposal in terms of electrifying new buildings or even retrofitting. Um, I, I know this, you know, this goes back to something I asked you earlier, but how confident are you that the sort of New York grid uh, can 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 match up with the requirements that that would instill? Um, you know, can New York provide the clean electricity to line up with aggressive decarbonization goals um, that we're talking about here? Yes, uh, we certainly can, but I would say we have a much better understanding of what it will take. So let me just give you one metric uh, to walk away with on this. Um, the, The work of our integration analysis that I spoke about earlier would reveal that New York's peak demand is is likely to double. Um, because of this electrification, you know, not not this year or next year, but, you know, a decade or more down down the road, we're looking at a significant expansion of uh, the utilization of our power grid. Um, And I think quite interestingly, the peak that we have now in our electric system is during the summer um, when it is the most hot, obviously, Mm -hmm. and air conditioners are running. But in the integration analysis, what we're seeing is a transformation to a peak that occurs in the winter because we would be utilizing electricity for heat um, Mm -hmm. more so than we do now. And and so what all all that means is exactly what what we talked about at the beginning. Um, We need to build out our grid, both in a bulk and in a distributed manner. We need a massive build out of renewables, Um, feeling really good about that pipeline. But you're absolutely right. We need to get them built. And we need them to, to be delivering uh, to serve um, these buildings and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to give you a minute if you want to highlight things on transportation, but I also want to um, let you go in just a couple of minutes because I don't want to take too much more of your time. But I, I want to ask you a couple quick questions. Um, knowing what we know now and, and the conversation we're having here about um, uh, especially about you know decarbonizing in New York City, was the closure of of Indian Point uh, and and the loss of that nuclear power, or the or the the gradual loss of that nuclear power, 
a mistake. There's been a lot of, um, you know, sort of there were warnings and then there's been a lot of sort of hindsight questions about that, sh- uh, that the, the decision to, to shut down uh, Indian Point and the question of where nuclear energy should fit into all of this. Sure. Yeah, we certainly um, planned for that shutdown. We've known that that would be the case for a number of years. And um, of course, there's many programs that are in place to support that host community through that transition. But um, it was one of the major reasons that we see a huge opportunity space for the renewables that I spoke about at the beginning, um, offshore wind and transmission from upstate in Canada that are needed to um, bring forth the clean energy that's needed in the city toward the achievement of our goals. So, so Indian Point specifically was certainly part of our planning exercise as to our upstate fleet that continues to, to deliver. You know, we have a good bit of time um, before their licenses are up for renewal and specifically um, have included, at least in our modeling, a modest amount of nuclear power uh, generation to continue into the future as well. Mm-hmm. Now you've been um, you've been in this in this position um, since since April of last year. Uh, well, you were you were acting uh, for for uh, almost a year prior to that, so so uh, a little while longer than that. But if you um, you know if you had been in in charge at NYSERDA, uh, you know prior to that, when some of these decisions were being made, would you have, would you have tried to either slow down or, or stop that that decision to close Indian Point, or is that not something that you think you know you think this is the right thing um, you know overall for New York City and New York State? Yes, so I have had this uh, position for going on two years now. I, I actually led our renewables team prior. So I've certainly been part of the state right. ecosystem um, for for a, a good bit of time. You know, the decision with respect to Indian Point was one based primarily in safety. Um, and and that is a decision that I specifically didn't didn't uh, participate in. But I'll tell you, it was, as I said, certainly part of our planning. And that's really what this all comes down to. Um, so long as we know where we're heading and mm-hmm. we know where we are, um, we can we can move from here to there. For me, it really became a baseline assumption as part of our planning exercises. Right, right. Understood. Um, is there um, one thing we haven't talked about, and, and forgive me for not knowing more about this, but um, is does New York have an issue around sort of uh, energy storage and and the battery type question? Um, I don't, I don't, if unless I missed it, I, you know, I don't think that's come up in our conversation, and I'm just wondering because of some of the variables that we've mentioned. Um, many, many variables in this transition, uh, long-term transition period. Is that a major concern uh, in terms of, of new forms of energy storage? I've, I've read some things about, you know, there being questions about how quickly some of that can come along. Yeah, energy storage, I would say, is a huge facilitative technology to get from where we are to where we need to be. Um, Governor Hochul did uh, outline a goal to double our energy storage target to six gigawatts by 2030. That's actually the largest target in the nation. Um, But when we think about energy storage, 
we think about it not only as a as to its ability to supplant fossil fuel generators and and specifically to balance the grid when it is highly renewable. It's also um, really interesting from an innovation perspective. Um, when we talk about energy storage, there are various um, technologies that are utilized, various chemistries as it's known of, of beyond lithium ion batteries as we're used to. But beyond that, we also are thinking about what we call long duration energy storage. And that's when we start looking at technologies that may help not just for an hour or two to balance the grid, but for many hours. And um, one technology that we're spending a lot of time on is hydrogen as an example of a long duration energy storage technology, potentially. Um, we, in fact, are working right now to um, really leverage what will be billions of dollars of federal funds in the world of hydrogen, as an example. So I know we're, we're short on time, but I would say as a general matter, um, it is a huge focus of our state and, and probably one that will be expanding beyond even what we're, we're doing now. Last question, the money. Uh, you, you need at least $10 billion a year, according to a nicer to report, I believe, to fund the, um, the needed components here of, of meeting the goals of the Climate Act. Um, do you have enough funding right now? Uh, are there sources of funding that you need to really focus on? Uh, as it always winds up coming back to the money, uh, let's, let's finish on the money. <laughs> sure. No, that's been a, a topic uh, very central to the work of the Climate Action Council. So in the first instance, the, the good news from our work is that the benefits of these investments far outweigh the costs. So that was one question we had when we started. Um, and the conclusion of a very robust assessment would say that the benefits from a jobs, from a health from a greenhouse gas perspective and beyond um, are, are actually far in excess of, of how, how much this will all cost. That is not to say that we aren't thinking about the cost, but I think in the macro sense, we would say this is definitely worth doing. Um, from the cost perspective, the answer isn't as uh, straight and uh, clean as you might like it to be. But the fact of the matter is the cost is going to come, is going to be paid in a lot of different ways. Um, of course, we as a state will continue to invest at scale. Um, NYSERDA's budgets have certainly increased notably because of our renewable programs as an example. But it is also the case that we are in a moment where we have a huge amount, as I said, a huge opportunity for federal leverage. Um, and we intend to take maximum um, benefit from that uh, hydrogen as one example that I mentioned today. And then we have the opportunity specifically for private sector involvement as well. Um, one of my favorite examples is with our offshore wind port investments. Uh, we invested $100 million and we get three times the benefits, um, three times, sorry, the investments from the private sector moving forward. So it is the case that it ends up being very site specific, very application specific and the like, and that there isn't sort of one place where this all will come from or where it will all reside. 
you see pieces of this coming together. Um, the governor's policy agenda for this year is very notable because it's it's investing, it's including a legislative agenda, and it's obviously including regulation as well to get from here to there. Um, we're going to see that more and more as we advance other initiatives toward the achievement of our goals. All right. Well, I really appreciate all the time. Uh, you've been listening to Doreen Harris, the president and CEO of the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, NYSERDA. Uh, thank you for, for getting into a whole lot of this. We didn't get to a couple of things, but uh, but we could talk for hours, of course, about this. So really appreciate the time. And um, and we'll catch up with you down the line here as uh, as more and more of this you know comes to fruition. And, and we'll see what uh, opportunities and challenges arise. But uh, Doreen Harris, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Ben. It was a ple pleasure.